Hello and welcome to another episode of the Massage Matters podcast with us, the Massage Collective. Myself, Matt Scarsbrook, Anna-Maria Mazzieri and Becky demont Horton. This is actually session 20 and quite frankly, we're delighted to have not been kicked off the airwaves just yet. So to celebrate that, we, and by we, I actually mean Anna-Maria and Becky, celebrated by having our first real-life live guest. Not to say, of course, our other guests haven't been live, but this was live live, like face-to-face live, like socially distanced face-to-face live, but live. Anna and Becky had the absolute pleasure of being able to go to Bristol to meet up with James Earls of Born to Move fame and sit down with him in a lovely cafe in order to host a live, have I said live enough yet, live interview with him to find out about what he's up to at the moment and where his research has been taking him. Now, thanks to the power of the interwebs, I was able to join in as well from a uh, from a distance. So there is a little bit of background noise and then every now and again I try and jump in because they keep forgetting about me. This is an absolutely wonderful conversation, which just goes to show how chatty we can be when there's more than a few bottles of wine lubricating the conversation. And James really enlightens us on his studies and the teaching that he does on human movement from the perspective of combining our understanding of soft tissues and the skeleton, rather than, as is commonly taught, by viewing them separately. His unique and yet on reflection entirely sensible approach has led to his current research in evolutionary anatomy through which James is deriving an understanding of present day efficient movement strategies based on the evolving anatomy from our ancestors to where we are today. Now through the course of this conversation we touch on anthropology, the biotensegrity model, how we learn when we're learning our anatomy and physiology as if our our muscles and bones and connective tissues are are sort of different systems uh, rather than really understanding the true interrelationships of movements if you think back to when you were practicing your your muscles you're not really thinking about so which bone does that attach to and and how does that create a, a global movement we just learn by rote that x muscle is involved in y movement We ask in the podcast whether we're at risk of oversimplifying the bio component of the biopsychosocial model because of the complexities of psychosocial that really draw us into understanding that. And ask, does our current approach to teaching anatomy and physiology mean we end up trying to make our clients fit the models we've been taught rather than truly appreciating the vast spectrum of normal variation in people's structure and movement patterns? As James so eloquently puts it, At the moment, we are attempting to derive an understanding of movement from base-level anatomy. Why are we not studying people's movement and then asking how the anatomy enables them to do that? As always, you can find The Massage Collective on Facebook and Instagram, and you can, of course, get in contact with us about this episode or any of the others on massage at physio-matters.com. So, to steal a catchphrase from one of my favourite podcasts, on with the show! So, James, give us a little bit of a synopsis of your uh, professional career and professional interests Sure. so far. Um, I'm originally from a little town just south of Belfast in, in Northern Ireland, and I struggled through, through school and... Just, 
in order to avoid getting getting a job and working for a living i went to university at the end of uh, university i, I got some uh, did a year's voluntary work at a peace and reconciliation in the, the north of ireland and whilst i was there i came across a few people who were doing involved with with basic massage and shiatsu and, and also aromatherapy and by accident I, I had fallen into using some essential oils whilst i was at university trying to help me study studying psychology you want things to keep you awake and help you concentrate so um and whilst i was there we started doing small little kind of mini workshops with some of the groups that were coming to to the center uh, and they were coming for really kind of time out from their 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 various stresses in life so some of them so there was um um inner city belfast inner city derry londonderry um cross community work um there was a lot of just a lot of stress in the early 90s um late 80s um, through through ireland so we had these people come turning up and you could see the anxiety they were in different environments they were it was a beautiful setting right on the coast overlooking the the water and beach and we would get them sit around in a circle and we would teach a, a very simple blend of essential oils and uh, massage oil and put in some essential oil and teach them a very simple hand and foot massage I was sitting, I was just 21. I just see these people let go and exhale. I thought, wow, that's, that's, you know, it's not changing their life, but it's changing their moments. So, so I, I thought that's, that's what I want to do. So I, I, after I, my, my year was up, I was kind of kicked out. I'm um, not, not <laughs> my year was up. So I, I had to go and actually decide what to do for a living. So I decided to train in aromatherapy and back in the early 90s there were very few resources in really kind of in-depth study of, of body work and it was really the, the massage element that I really kind of caught my enthusiasm so I started subscribing different um, magazines one of them is the massage magazine from the US and I think it was in 97 it popped through my letterbox and there was an article called understanding the foot and I had taken the kind of traditional kind of back then traditional kind of group aromatherapy and reflexology and on-site massage and Indian head massage and all that but so I thought as a reflexologist I should understand the foot so I read the article and it was the first time somebody had explained anatomy to me I thought wow that, this is this is interesting anatomy can actually be interesting when it's taught from a certain kind of understanding. And this was the, the first of a series of articles by a guy called Thomas Myers. So I started kind of making sure that I, I, I read each of the articles and building up through the, the rest of the body. Um, and in 99, there was a, an advert saying, Thomas Myers coming to Dublin to talk about anatomy trends. I thought, I don't know what the heck is anatomy trends, but I liked this guy's style of explaining anatomy. So I got on train, went on to Dublin, and sat in the room for three days with Thomas Myers doing one of the early presentations on anatomy trains. And after three days, I thought, I still have no idea what the hell anatomy trains is. But <laughs> I saw the kind of this bigger vision of his approach to structural integration, his approach to anatomy. And I then jumped on a, on a, on a plane to, my, uh, I was going to say migrate, but to commute between Belfast and Boston uh, to train in uh, his approach to uh, structural integration. Uh, between 2000 and 2001 in 2004 2005 i then well, as a structural integrator then i, I started uh, teaching uh, for for his school the anatomy between schools through europe 
and and that's that gradually took over more and more of my life so a little bit less practice and more teaching um through 2012 2014 and in that process of teaching the uh, structural integration kind of a, a myofascial approach to, to body work um in different different schools and different positions in 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 Europe, particularly, I, I thought in workshops I said something, and there was a period around 2011 where I, I just remember, and I wasn't even saying the same thing, but saying something in different workshops, and people say that sounds like something Gary Gray would say, or some version thereof. I thought I have no idea. It's like, well, that's interesting. Thanks. But I'm moving <laughs> swiftly on. I thought I better better actually find out who the heck this this guy is so i, I googled him and, and all this stuff came up of gary gray the father of function and i thought oh he's actually talking about movement and through my practice i and particularly in teaching came across a lot of yoga teachers a lot of Pilates teachers who were training in body work saying why do you keep doing all of this stuff on a table with people static and passive it's like why why aren't you moving and you know that's the 15 years of, of body work why do you keep talking about movement when you can get people nice and relaxed on a massage table so like, what are you talking about go away and stop asking the awkward questions about movement and realized actually that actually i didn't understand movement i understood body work i understood anatomy and i understood the anatomy of a relaxed passive person i knew where i should be sticking my thumb and my elbow and you know, doing whatever was appropriate and needed for them but i didn't understand movement and so when i went along to the gary gray workshop i was like oh these people understand movement but they were speaking from a very traditional physical therapy language of the skeleton and the bones and the joints and the bones and the joints and I thought, oh, I realized we actually, in, in the school, in the approach I was teaching, we, we just focus on the soft tissue and we don't talk about the skeleton. These people aren't, they're talking about the skeleton, not talking about the soft tissue. So in 2012, 2013, I thought, well, what, what would happen if we could try and combine these two stories and look at anatomy in, in context of the, the myofascial skeletal system and you know, can we describe all of that and how they they interrelate, how they they interface with one another? Because nobody has taught me it that way. Because the joints relate to the soft tissue. It's like you, the angles of the joint correlate. They have to yeah. interplay, interrelated, uh, yeah. responsive. That you cannot separate the two. We cannot separate. No. But yet we do. Mm, you know, mm. Every anatomy book has the, the chapter on this gleeful system and then the chapter or the chapters on the muscular system. I would argue, James, that that might sometimes is to help the student learn. Mm -hmm. However, to help the student learn, sometimes we need yeah. to compartmentalize. Yeah. The problem is that we just kept it compartmentalized. We not, never put them together mm -hmm. in the real life anatomy, like you always yeah. speak about the real life anatomy. Yeah. I think so for, for me my, my new soapbox has been we we've taught anatomy in the wrong direction we have tried to understand movement from anatomy and would 
we start we start with the cell, we start with the structure of bone, we start with this, you know, the muscle fiber and the myosin and actin and blah, 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 blah. And we hope that if we keep building all of these little blocks of anatomized bits, that somehow our students are going to understand movement. That's, that's bloody hard. What if we actually just, you know, day one anatomy class, just look out the window and look at people move. So then choose one person and say, okay, what are they doing? How are they doing it? What is happening in their body? Okay, now I come and look at these pictures. Look at the big pictures. Let's look at the big picture of anatomy. Let's, let's look at the muscle man poster. And let's see, where were the lines of stress? Where were, where were the lines of openness that were coming through the body? What sections were closing? It's like, well, now can we put a name on that? Let's put on the muscle. Like, let's talk about pectoral major or whatever the, the thing is. What were they doing with the shoulder? That where was the line of stress going? What? How did that communicate into the? Well, did you see it communicate? Did it go? To, you know, was there a line of force to the opposite hip to the same side hip? What happened? Why was that happening? And so we actually start with a bigger, real picture. And so we got kind of the, the four dimensions of anatomy rather than the the two dimensions of the the, the posters and the pictures. So that leads on quite nicely to. Um... Sorry, Matt. That leads on quite nicely to what your your the way your interest is going now is into this um, evolutionary anatomy. Do you want to just yeah. touch on what that is and what sparked your interest along those lines? Sure. Um, I've always been a little bit interested in kind of the, the ancient people. So you know, I grew up in, in Ireland with lots of lots of um, dolmen and, and um, chamber graves, and, and that's always been an interest. So whenever looking at the a lot of the, the literature runs anatomy I realized there was a lot of literature from paleoanthropology and you know, th these people there was one particular paper I'd read around 15 years ago said oh when we look at this talus so we look at the, the ankle bone this is the talus of a tree climber I thought hold on you're looking at the ankle you can tell what this thing was doing with their upper bodies and you can actually tell what they're doing with their life you've taken one bone and you can say with a certain amount of confidence, this is their overall global movement strategy. Like, I want, I want that skill. I want that ability to look at the the form of a bone and be able to predict, see, visualize how that thing moved. Because again, there's that that correlation. It's not just the muscles correlate to the skeleton. The skeleton correlate to the to the um, to the muscles. It's actually all of that works to the movement strategy. And the only people that I find in the literature that are actually asking those questions around form and function were the paleoanthropologists. It wasn't coming from the sports mechanics. The sports mechanics were looking at the very reductionist. How can we increase power in gluteus maximus because everyone has a gluteus maximus or how can we increase the the, the length of throw by getting more power in the in pectoralis major so so for me it was it's that it's i can understand anatomy if i have more more examples more something else to compare it to so i like to be able to compare it's like okay well how do we move as a species now compared to the other primates and compared to our ancestors. And to me, if I understand the movement strategies of the other primates and maybe some of the movement strategy of our ancestors, it gives me a better depth of understanding of what might be happening in our system. When does that go right? And when, what happens when it goes wrong? 
I, I, I must admit, I think <clears throat> the anthropology link I had never particularly considered before, which is strange, I suppose, because I, I was one of those kids who was absolutely going to be a dinosaur archaeologist when he grew up. Um, and, of course, even when you look at you know, the fossil record outside of hominids, we, we are making predictions about not only the way that these, these creatures look, but, as you say, also move just from bones that are often incomplete anyway you know we can we've identified several species of of um of uh, historic animal based on one or two one or two bones one or two you know pieces but, but we know enough that we can then extrapolate that to a creature which we can then start assigning some life properties to such as movement so i i've never really thought of, about approaching that way yeah yeah and to me they're the only people that are that I've come across that are asking those questions, how can we how can we interpret function from form? And so they're looking at what, what's the implication of the, the arrangement, the shape, the the, the, the angles, the, the size of a talisman, and what implications would that have to a, a shoulder? I think it's it's fascinating and it, it really kind of it ties in to me with the a lot of the, the newer ideas around tensegrity anatomy. So, you know, if we're going to have a tensegrity anatomy approach that everything is connected, we have to understand the implication of the form that every soft tissue and every bone actually has, because it's, it's going to channel forces through the body in a certain way. James, what do you mean with tensegrity anatomy? Yeah. For um, our listeners, they yeah, might probably, not be conversant. If I go right back to basics of going, I. It's probably a lesson that all of us learnt at some stage whenever we were growing up and exploring the world. For me, it was, uh, I had a, a strong memory of it. it was just last week, I was telling, talking to somebody. I remember riding a bike, learning to ride a bike, and I, I'd, finally I'd kind of almost mastered it. And then I discovered one day that I nearly, I nearly fell off because I turned my head. It's like, well, hold on. It's like, what happened? What, what happened there? It's like, well, I turned my head, my head, when I turned my head, my shoulders turned, and when my shoulders turned, my arms moved, and my arms were connected to the handlebars. It's like, oh, hold on. So my head is connected to my shoulders, connected to my arms, which riding a bike connected to the handlebars. We knew that when we were kids. It's like we know that the, the body is connected, that if we if we change something, if we, you know, we learn to throw, if you want extra power in a throw, you put the rest of your body, you don't just throw stronger, harder with your arm. You try and get the rest of your body into it. So to me, that's kind of the, the, the one of the underpinning principles of the tensegrity, and that's being that the body is continuous. The body is a is one dynamic whole. It's complete. And we have separated it out with the study of anatomy. So we, we've got very skilled tools for understanding the bits, the pectoralis minor and pectoralis major and the humerus and whatever. We haven't really fully understood how they all work in that the complete thing that is the body. So how does the pectoralis major actually cause a pronation of my left foot? whenever I make a posterior reach with my hand. That to me is tensegrity anatomy. Tensegrity structures in and of themselves, so the, the word has come from Buckminster Fuller, an architect, 
um, who was describing the structures and sculptures made by uh, an artist called Snelson, where Snelson was suspending um, solid struts through tensional cables, so that none of the struts were actually touching one another. So to put that into our body, it's the bones are the struts, the dowels, and they're suspended. They're kind of, they're floating in tension that's created by the soft tissue. So no, no bones should be touching one another. There should be in any healthy joint. There's a joint space. What's in the joint space? Well, fluid, what holds the fluid in place? Don't ask me, we don't quite, well, it's nothing really has to hold it there because there's a tensional network around it. And you know, we can keep going down the, those rabbit holes. <laughs> the idea of, of continuity and interrelationships. So in a in a tensegrity structure, you know, a lot of people talk about tensegrity. If you make a change in tension in one portion of that complete structure, the whole structure reacts. And that's that's a truth in our body. If I make a movement, the whole body will change. Of course. It, 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 again, it's all those interrelationship, you know, interrelationship between body structures, interrelationship between body, between uh, emotional and social factors and psychological factors. The human being is more complex than being differentiated and separated in all these, these little elements. And I think sometimes we focus, you know, we need to appreciate, like you're saying, this, this real life anatomy. But I think so far we possibly focus on the differentiation of the structural factors and compartmentalize them. And we possibly understood um, anatomy a little bit differently. And I think, Becky, you were, you know, we were chatting about it, about this, uh, you know, putting back uh, the biology mm. or the right uh, context of biology into bi the bio aspect. Yeah, and it, I mean, this is probably, for just thinking about it, the, the podcast, is, this is probably the most biological we've been because, you know, we... we 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 talk about client-centered care and about the biopsychosocial approach and I know there's been a lot of talk through the profession as a whole about the relevance of the the bio anymore and I, we had a really nice chat uh, before we started James about actually have we been looking at bio from the wrong perspective and has that has that been the issue and is that where it's maybe lost its way a little yeah. bit perhaps um so I think some you know the biopsychosocial model does accept the, the ideas of complexity. It's like, okay, so we are complex beings in a, a social environment that has lots of dynamics going on. And sometimes the bio gets reduced into this anatomical model. But actually, in the biological aspect, in the, in, yeah. in the biomechanical, it's actually when we get into the reality, it's actually very complex. Yes. And it has a, this the same amount of complexity and confusions and frustrations that everyone will talk about in terms of the, the psychosocial. It's like, it's very complex, but you know, a lot of research is in research. You have to control the variables in order to publish an anatomy book. You have to be very clear and precise. Whenever you're doing your dissection, you have to be very clean with your scalpel cuts. And the reality is that's not how we move. It's not how we are. It's not, not our form. And it, 
I think one of the major difficulties for practitioners is making that that leap over into accepting that I'm actually when if, if I look at the biomechanics from a tensegrity complexity point of view, I'm not going to get simple answers. Yeah. I'm not going to get simple protocols. It's like there's going to be confusions and um, frustrations within it. I think um, <clears throat> one of the areas of the biotensegrity model that I find um, still a bit perplexing personally is is the the lack of or the I perceive the lack of integration of the neuro side into biotensegrity. So the 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 idea that the the um, neurology is responsible for contraction or relaxation of different elements of of the tissue. Um, and that that is going to influence the uh, the movement of the body in quite a different way to the original Buck, Buckminster Fullering um, tensegrity model, you know, of, 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 of everything being under either tension or um, compression. Yep. Because actually we can, and, 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 and you have that, that almost... Um, we have the ability to totally change the way we move for any particular goal. And I haven't quite yet seen how the biotensegrity bio model explains that or, or kind of covers that. Does it have to? I think that the biotensegrity, to me, so my, my approach to um, the, the tensegrity approach to, to, to movement is accepting of the huge amount of variability that we have so whether we, whether we're, our movement strategy is going to be affected by um, different choices, movement choices. So whether I go to exercise class, or if I go to Pilates, I can do a, a roll up or a roll down in, in 16 different different ways because I make that choice. Or from a, 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 an emotional point of view, that how I do it today, when the sun is shining and I'm, I'm good company and I'm feeling happy, would be completely different from how I do it in two weeks when I'm feeling depressed. And so, so there, we have to be accepting that the, the biopsychosocial, that, that Venn diagram, let's say the overlapping, is that Venn diagram? Yeah. Um, yeah. The overlapping circles. Each one of those circles is a, is, is a three-dimensional complex, complex, you could say, tensegrity model yeah. in and of themselves. Yeah, in fact. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, suppose, I suppose the bit I struggle with, and, and, and you know, I, I hold my hands up to say that the biotensegrity model is not, is not something that I am... Um, 100% au okay with um, yet. It, well, not to the not to the level I would like to be. But I suppose what bothers me is if we're we're making models around a tension compression system, mm -hmm. then what is it that's controlling that tension slash compression? Because surely we need to be understanding that. And if it's not the neurological system. As in, because like I say, I'm not seeing neuro effects being accounted for in biotensegrity descriptions. If it's not the neurology, if it is something inherent within the human body, mm -hmm. then what is it that prevents bodies from flying apart or totally falling apart once they've died? That's a wonderful question. And I'm sure that some people within the, the biotensegrity community could could. Uh, engage with you further than, than I can. Um, part of it is, I would say, is the self-organizing principle within our structures, is the, the mystery of life. There's a beautiful book by Alice Roberts, 
Um, and, and I just love the title. It's the incredible unlikeliness of being. It's like, it's like, and she, she's investigating. It's like, what happens from that moment of conception? So it's like there are just there are so many dynamics that go right, you know, and unfortunately it does go wrong many times. But it's like, wow, and there's something that is self-organizing within the organism. So what keeps us together? It's it's that it's the self-organization. We are at the at the mercy of physics, um, as well. So there's the the. Um, the, the attractive principles. There's also the mechanotransduction. So there's a lot of communication from cell to cell that is not neural. So just looking at the, the osteocytes, um, for example, within the bones, they communicate, appear to communicate to one another through hydraulics and also through genes and chemistry, not through neural. Like, but it's the osteocytes that are somehow informing the osteoplastic, osteoplastic activity, that's not neural, but it's a part of the self-organization and the designing, the remodeling of our bones that's going on through life. So the, you know, we, we have a, a developing sophisticated vocabulary for the, for the neural system and the neural control that we have, but that's only, that's only one organizing principle within the body. So oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not suggesting it's the overriding principle at yeah. all. It's more that it, but it clearly is an important one when we're talking mm -hmm. uh, gross movement. I suppose. Yes, gross conscious intentional movement. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, yes, and the work of Professor Hying would say that actually there's in terms of organising um, motor control, and I'll use that word very loosely mm. in the loosest sense. There is a local communication that seems to happen that does not go to the spinal cord and certainly is too fast in kind of in reactive terms to go all the way to the brain and come back again in the kind of traditional textbook kind of model. There is something local that is some some local information that seems to be processed for the control and management of the movement forces. That seems to be communicated through the, the the collagenous tissue. That's not just purely neural, and it's too fast for the nervous system. So I'm actually with you. The nervous system needs to be part of the, the story, and there's a lot more, many more, a lot more of the story. <laughs> yeah. I think what 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 jumps out there, and I've probably been really guilty of this myself when I'm certainly when I'm teaching is we look at the biopsychosocial model and our, I guess because of the way anatomy books are written and the way we learn anatomy, we go, oh, that's the bio circle. That's dead simple. That's just, that's just, you know, the way we are, the way we, we're, we're put together. So that that's simple. Psycho and social are really complex and they're multifaceted and they have lots of different influences on them. And it's been really easy to just brush over the bio and say that's simple but listening to you it's just it drives home actually that that has the same or it has the same level of complexities as the other two circles in that venn diagram we made it simple yes mm -hmm. we well, made it reductionist yeah and that's what i loved about um the way james you described uh right at the beginning about why don't we reverse almost the way we look at these things or teach these things and start with the movement and then move to the anatomy mm. so mm. one of the things that jumped to mind there was there is um 
uh, a common frustration, I suppose, um, that I that I see uh, when there are therapists who are still trying to get their clients to um, move in a normal way, um, or when they're expecting everyone to uh, to have a a normal skeleton, shall we say? You know, for one of a better word. Basically, what I'm saying is, I think that the way that we present the muscle system, the skeletal system, and then all the other uh, visceral systems. Mm-hmm. We present a perfect model that then becomes the only model against which students compare their real life clients. Whereas I think your idea of actually, let's start by looking at real life people. Yeah. Then we can all agree that there is a model that we're just going to use for sake of ease, but yeah. that no one looks like this. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it goes, it's such a simple thing. Um, I can't know, it was only a few weeks ago somebody was talking about oh, their experience of the dissection class. So I'm, it wasn't until I did dissection class that, and saw other other bodies that were on the on the slabs that I realized that people are different. And yeah. when you take away the skin and open the body up, um, it doesn't look like the anatomy books. I thought, why is that a surprise? Yeah. Why, why is it a surprise? Every day we're looking at different people. We see the different shapes. We are the, highly the variable anatomically, functionally. Yeah. There is no standard. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's also because we're taught to, okay, let's, let's take a really simplistic approach to say massage. We're taught how to massage a leg. We're taught we're working the quads and the hamstrings. We're taught we're working in such a way that we're not compressing against the femur. But there's no discussion about the fact that they vary between individuals. You just, you just know them as a bone and a muscle. <laughs> yep. Even though that I'm sure everyone has also been taught Wolf's Law and Davis's Law. The yeah. body responds to the demands based upon it. Mm-hmm. There are other, mm-hmm. other complexities within each of those laws that are not just simple mechanical laws. So we know that everyone looks different and everyone moves differently and they're therefore under different stresses and therefore Wolf's Law, Davis's Law, different stresses, they should be laying down different tissues. So, so we have all that information with us, but yeah, it's that it's almost like we're brainwashed by the books. I don't even think we're brainwashed. I think it's easier to understand, yeah. James. I mm-hmm. think it's the linear thinking that is much easier because one when when on a Monday we we do our courses at the weekend, and when on a Monday we go back to clinic, it's easy to bring everything back to the simplicity of linear thinking, so that we can provide something easy and quick within the interrelationship with the client and that's where i think we are having a problem because we do not we are not so used about thinking about the human being as a complex experience Mm -hmm. so we like to make it because it's complex all the biology are complex the psychology is complex the social aspects are complex so we want to bring them back to make sense in our brain into we want to bring them back to something simpler and those linear relationships are simpler and yeah. that's where that and i don't think it's even uh, yeah i think the problem is wider i think we need to accept ultimately about the complexity of the human being and the human experience yeah actually I, I think we we tend to go through these these phases after 30 years in the, in the, in, mm. the, in the business 
I'm old enough to be able to see the kind of the patterns. Different topics, different areas get sexy for five to ten years, and then they kind of fade away. Whenever I first trained, everyone was dying of repetitive strain injury, and then everyone was dying of weak gluteus maximus, and everyone, well, before that, there was weak core, and then now everyone's got weak feet. And, yes. and and it's brilliant that we, we delve into those areas, we get a better understanding and come back out, but unfortunately we go back to the next sexy area uh, rather than going, actually, all these things are just as important as each other. And yes. in that biopsychosocial model, they're all equally important in theory and differently important for the individual. There is actually quite a strong criticism at the moment, not strong criticism, sorry, it's a critique at the moment about the BPS model that is too reductionist in itself because some people see this as bio and then sacco and then social so the so there is this new proposed model from the Stilwell et al that they're discussing about the inactive model or they bring in forward this inactive model which is a is a more of an interrelationship with the context and everything to me actually i don't think we even explored fully the biopsychosocial model as anger originally proposed it. So, you know, I, I think uh, we are, we're moving, we're progressing, we're evolving and without, I think sometimes we need to, to actually take a little bit of a breath and live in the present and, and fulfill what we have there in the present. But there is something, James, that really, really intrigues me. Is there so I know that you 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 studied and you you did your masters in uh, evolutionary biology or anatomy evolutionary. It's human anatomy. Human, and evolution. yeah, human anatomy and evolution. So, what can you tell us about uh, movement? Is there an opt individually optimal movement? Individually optimal or an individually optimal movement for the moment in that that's why I want yes probably no simple answer to mm -hmm. that. I think so there is more and less optimal, I would I would guess for from most people in most movements. So yes, and and my bias would be I would explain that from a, an anatomical point of view. And trying to put in the, so the, the joint alignment to the, the to the soft tissue alignment and its ability to control either the momentum or produce more momentum, more force for that for that movement, and the way that the forces track through the body can be more or less optimal or more or less efficient. Let's say I think that's a better 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 word uh, for me anyway. Um, so the, I think the, the tissue alignment, so the overall myofascial alignment, the overall um, joint alignment, the overall bone form, each has a slightly different shape, will determine that, that efficiency, your ability to um, manage that, that, that movement. So, so I'm not sure, I'm hopefully answering your question. Yeah, yeah, I think of playing darts. So if I'm playing darts, it's... A, it's a sim relatively simple but complex movement of um, elbow extension and a little bit of shoulder um, extension or flexion. Sorry. And but if I'm throwing a javelin, that becomes a even well, that's similar kind of upper girdle, but now I'm going into spinal extension and spinal rotation with hip extension 
maybe some ankle dorsiflexion on one side and plantar flexion on the other side, depending on the position, along with rotation that's going through the through the hips. It's like, oh, hold on. All of the body has to be able to get into a certain position where I can wind up the tissue to create enough stiffness in the system. So if I'm just throwing a dart, I don't need my rectus abdominis to be that engaged. If I'm throwing a javelin, well, I'm, I'm going to go better have my rectus abdominis internal and external obliques engaged and stiffened to some degree. If they're too stiff, I don't get the range of motion. I need the range of motion to get enough power. If they're under stiff, I'll get too much range of motion. I'll just fall over and plant the javelin behind me somewhere. So there's, again, so many variables and things that we can be talking about. What is optimal? What's the call? Do I need absolute mm. pinpoint accuracy? And so I want to minimize the variables, just elbow from throwing dart, elbow and shoulder, joint. or do I need the extra power? Because like, you know, there's a wider window of success for the javelin throw. And so, yes, I think there are better strategies and less optimal strategies. And it it's really interesting as well because we, again we had a bit of a chat earlier and what really struck with me because we talk about efficiency of movement and often it's it's talked of in that context isn't it of almost um improving performance and something like that but you made the lovely point earlier that actually a, an efficient movement is one if, if we can help somebody be more efficient in their movement they're more likely to do the movement it's more likely to feel enjoyable and we can keep people moving more yeah, so, so sometimes I, I, kind of, I very quickly scroll through some of the social media and occasionally one can get the implied message from pain science that actually pain is not important, ignore pain and just get people kind of better educated and moving differently. Mm -hmm. like, oh, yes, there's a certain amount of truth to that story, obviously. And there's a mixed message in what's happening with the tissue. So, you know, the, the classic that I've always referenced, oh, well, take an X-ray of 100 spines and those with pain will actually be, many of them will be perfectly normal and those that have no pain could be completely screwed up. Yes, so, you know, so we don't need to do anything with the ones that are completely mm -hmm. screwed up because they're not pain. Can be the kind of implied message with that. Well, actually, What's their movement quality like? Because many times their movement quality is not going to be as efficient, as smooth, as productive as it could be. What are the wider implications? Because why are you only looking at the spine? Because if the movement, so if I'm throwing the javelin, to take an extreme example, that movement has to go through the spine. If the spine is not moving as efficiently, what's that going to do to the hips or to the ankles or to my feet? So I need to be able to say, well, can I improve the quality efficiency of your movement so that I can make or encourage movement to be a more pleasant experience for you to try and encourage the, yes. at the moment morbidity yeah. is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. So yeah. from, you know, we can, we're bringing to keeping people alive, mm -hmm. but they're not moving. Mm -hmm. Can we keep people moving so that we actually decrease that length of morbidity? That's why I wondered, though, James, if he's... I've got to formulate it well in my head first, okay? So forgive me for this pause a moment. But is 
it's not the structure that actually we want to be optimal. It's the movement we want. We want to increase the capacity of those structures to produce the, the efficient movement. Yes. So do we actually need to change the movement or do we need to improve the capacity of the movement? Uh, both, I, I would say. Yes, and yeah. this is the, I enter into the experiment with every client. Mm. Like, what am I going, what are we going to be able to achieve in this relationship? Um, what is your capacity for change? So what's the, the structure's capacity for change? So, mm -hmm. Yes, fair enough. Yes. So. Is that is that potential there for changing? If, yeah. if, if there is no potential, we definitely need to no. increase only capacity to so, increase capacity. Yeah. yeah. So can I can I can give increase. you different mm -hmm. strategies? Can I can I work yeah. in different directions in order to, to give you new new possibilities? Can I open up those kind of avenues? Can I get you excited about the experience of your movement? Before yeah. you said, you said you used a beautiful sentence. You said being creative by giving different strategies for movement. I love mm -hmm. that that creativity because that's what we do. We are exposing them to a different movement. We're giving them variability of movement, which we know that for a joint to be healthy, for movement to be healthy, it needs variability. Mm -hmm. The brain is the one who will choose which strategies to use today according yeah. to different factors internal and external but ultimately we need uh, great variability don't we so more yeah. variability we show them and more variability we show them better it is because yeah. um, i think um sorry i was going to just sort of jump in and say because i think what's really important out of all of that is uh, uh, with a very as a very simplistic statement Perfectly efficient movement doesn't necessarily mean pain-free movement, does it? No. No, I mean, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, and, 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 it, and for me, because I was thinking that through as we go, because obviously, yes, we want to, I mean, efficient movement sounds like a brilliant sort of uh, goal, doesn't it? And, and it, it may become, but like you say, it depends on the goal of the individual. Are we talking uh, improved performance, <laughs> uh, whatever that is, or are we actually talking... Um, uh, removal of of pain and discomfort at which point like you were just saying the the capacity and the variability both become very important when we're talking pain yeah yeah and i know it's a it's a it's a recurrent theme in some discussions over frustrations of healthcare practitioners mm. particularly surgeons um even trying to gps and to us as therapists of whatever form, why is it that we keep seeing people in dysfunction and in pain and in disease? We we should be trying to maintain health. We should be trying to maintain optimal or efficient movement strategies. We sh I, I know pain is a great motivator for people to actually knock on the door of the, the clinic, but actually, can we change part of the discussion around can we help maintain people maintain their mobility abilities for as long as possible? Can we rebrand ourselves as the, the health maintainers, the movement maintainers, the movement variability, the option providers? It's almost a um, it's almost a radical uh, uh, overhaul of something like the NHS because, I mean. Yeah, when you put it into that context, we plough billions of pounds of public funding into helping people once they're already broken. 
Yeah. But how Personal how much clinics, could we save? Yeah, how much money could we save if we play if we plowed money into keeping them not broken? <laughs> because ult- yeah, yeah, absolutely, Matt. Because ultimately, again, I repeat the same word. Ultimately, it's lack of variability of movement that is creates the problem. You know, getting away, lacking the, those extra strategies for the brain to use. That's what might create a problem into our in our in our daily function. So, I think that. You know, to your point, James, let's give them, let's be part of their pathway to health or they to maintaining health instead of being the crisis clinic. Yeah. And being creative, so do you need to increase the horizontal abduction of your right shoulder? I can immediately give you 20 different strategies for doing that. The textbooks will give you one, which is go into a pec major stretch. Like, well, yeah, well, what, what would happen if you actually put your arm up and turned your head to the left? What would happen if you reached back with your opposite arm? What would happen if you actually turned your hips to the because life movement is so variable, yeah. you never just horizontally abduct the shoulder. No, and so, yeah, I think the, the mm. resources that we're given are actually limiting, limiting our view, and so. I just want to encourage kind of going back to that idea. Let's look at what people actually do. And so my probably most influential teacher, Gary Graves, is like, let's talk about the truth of movement. And if we start from there, and that you know, movement in the biggest sense, so it's the reality of life. It's like, let's look at the reality of life and then create the tools to try and optimize that reality of life that we have to try and deal with. Uh, James, when you were talking before, you used the word that sometimes I struggle with. Uh, you used the word dysfunction. It's, mm-hmm. it's a word that I am not very comfortable with. It doesn't sit very well with me for different reasons. So in terms of movement, do you see movement? Do you see a movement dysfunction existing? It's kind of, it's the same kind of, it's, the same question possibly that I asked before about movement efficiency, but I'm quite keen to know that is there dysfunction or do you consider dysfunction something that exists or do you consider that just the body not have achieved, you know, might not be able to achieve the movement because they lack, they lack the capacity or they lack the strength or... Yeah, I probably haven't ventured into the, the, the discussion around the, the, the semantics of, yeah. of dysfunction as much as, much as you've saying. given it. Um, so I would consider it a movement dysfunctional if it's causing a an issue somewhere else. So let's say lack of big toe extension because it's, it's almost epidemic. So if my client is turning up with a knee problem or a hip problem, then... And every time that they go for a walk, they come back with an, an, an aggravation of that. So I can maybe tie their story together. It's like, well, you have a lack of toe extension. That affects the mechanics around the knee, affects the mechanics around the hip. So maybe part of your story might be tied up with this lack of toe extension, which whenever not talking to a client, I would maybe label as a dysfunction. And so they can be so they can be acquired and um, they can be so 
whether that be a kind of a motor control variability, they can be a, after an injury, they can also be structural and we should differentiate a movement um, dysfunction from a, a structural inherited developed through ontogeny um, um, difference. So not everyone has gone to the, the classic, you know, relatively straight legs. Some people are more bowed, or some people are more x legs. They have the normal variability, normal not, for them. Yes, yeah, not, yeah. That's not a dysfunction. Yes, that's that's what I wanted to get yeah. to because I think, uh, and this is where as the massage collective we're very stronger. That the narrative and the semantics we need to be a little bit more careful sometimes at the semantics we use when we work work in healthcare because uh, when somebody hears the word dysfunction as a client what that mean to them when they go home that might have more of an effect to their pain yeah. and well-being than yes. actually what we, what we do with them yes the literature and certainly mm. you know, my heritage mm -hmm. would be very prone to pathologizing yes normal we were variation. all yes it's like you yes. don't stand correctly, you're kind of skewed yes. here and there. So therefore, oh man, we catastrophize and predict yes. all kinds of nuclear bombs and going off in the hips and all kinds of things. Yes, I, I remember you were the very first one to, because so obviously I, I took in several courses with you and you ran them from our school. And you were the very first ones years ago, I would say even probably nearly a decade ago, to say when you look in the body reading, you never called the posture analysis, the body reading, you always said, point out what looks great on on those people, you know. So I, I will always remember that. So I know that for you, semantics are, are quite important. Oh, language is quite important. But the, the, the um, dysfunction term is something that I am still struggling with in my, myself because sometimes I catch myself saying it. And uh, So I think we... we we shouldn't um, pathologize the normal variations. There are some variations of it. Lots of, mm -hmm. so the, the increased Q angle of female hips, for, for example, is kind of one example. Um, lots of confused and varied um, um, re, um, findings in the literature. And so you can pick and choose which is like, yes, increased uh, tendency to um, ACL rupture, no difference at all. Some actually show, show that actually it's not the Q angle, it's the Q angle in coupled with another issue. So if they have a weakened hip um, complex, if they have a challenged foot, if they have a stronger external load then they are more prone to that so mm. we shouldn't kind of predict but we should be aware of oh that this is a p potential area of interest if it's in um, concert with other challenge areas i suppose i suppose for me listening to to you two discussing the, the, this idea of dysfunction for me i guess what jumps out is that perhaps dysfunction ought to be framed within a, um, a sort of a temporal framework you know is it a dysfunction if that's how you were born is it a dysfunction if that's uh that happened 10 years ago and you're adapted to it since or is it a dysfunction if you had a car accident and now you've ended up with say a limp and that and, and now you're coming in with some pain somewhere else but we can maybe track that to a 
dysfunction because actually what's happened is you have been exposed to different loads your body wasn't prepared for as a result okay. of you adapting to this this new injury i suppose yep. that's that's how i'm hearing it yeah and maybe is there some discussion around so the the idea of the self-organizing principle again that so we will arrange our tissues in Wolf's law davis's law again um in order to manage the loads that we repeatedly expose ourselves to and then to me maybe any so if i was to define it currently and in this moment define dysfunction so if something some some event does happen that causes an issue i would say that's an acquired dysfunction but over time my body might learn to adapt and reorganize itself so it no longer becomes a dysfunction i might still have the the, the skew if knee or the challenge foot but my system adapts around that so i might Sorry, go ahead. To interrupt. No, no, no. Um, I was just going to say, so from a therapist perspective, then it, it what it highlights is understanding the history behind what it is you're seeing from the client's perspective is really, really important. Yeah. You know, don't, for, you know, almost what we're saying is what, what I guess is still called a postural analysis, um, you know, as it's taught. Actually, that postural analysis has to be timed with how long has that been like that? Have you always had this? Um or is this a recent injury without without trying to pathologize it to the client, obviously, but almost that's the thought process a, a therapist yeah. might. For me, the postural analysis is never a diagnosis. Postural analysis is only for me to speed up my ability to ask better questions. Brilliant. Yeah. And that's both verbal questions, but also physical questions. Um, as you're in this moment, as I'm looking at you, it looks like your acromion process is closer to your sternum than I think it should be but I'm you know, internal processing. So can you take those two bones away from each other? And if I give you a movement cue that should result in those two bones moving away from each other and you perform that and they do, then, okay, I'm less interested in that area. If they don't, like, then I've got a diagnosis, or you know, yeah. loosely using the word diagnosis. Now I am interested in that area. That area seems to be potentially tighter restrictions or fewer movement mm -hmm. options open to it so so yeah it's yeah. never sorry go ahead yeah oh no, no no i was just nodding away uh going yeah no I, I i totally see where you're coming from there and i think it's it's really um i think it's a refreshing way of looking at what is commonly taught as a fairly static yeah Approach. Yeah. So to extend that, if I'm looking, you know, you come to me with a, a low back pain and I see that potential restriction between chromium process and sternum, I start asking you questions about what you do with your right shoulder, if it's the right shoulder I'm looking at. And okay, I get you to do that movement. And I see how that that movement relates to your the movement load in around your, your low back. Does your right shoulder actually tie into the story that you're telling me about your pain and discomfort so that, and if it does if i see that manifest through the movement pattern then your shoulder is an area of interest if it if it doesn't then i move on to find another likely culprit or six so i i i I would kick myself. Uh, i suppose this is this is me jumping topic slightly but i would kick myself um as a 
original absolute advocate for barefoot running uh, and now a little bit more uh, balanced, I suppose, in my view. I would kick myself if I had the opportunity to speak to you about anatomy and I didn't ask you to focus a little bit more on the foot in particular reference to things like, I know you said it's, you know, it's, it's almost like these things go in circles and it's a bit of a hot topic. Um, but talk, talk to me about the shod foot versus the, the bare foot perhaps and, and, uh, and what we understand around that. Sure, I have where to start. So um, in, in some social media posts, it's, it's almost it's a very binary kind of in the in the barefoot minimal shoe camp is like the Nikes and Reeboks should all be burned at the stake. They, they're just they're evil, they're manifestations of the devil himself. Um, and to me, it was like, well, let's let's talk about the what is the intention of the runner? Do, am I running for performance or am I running for the fun of it? If I'm running for performance, I'm probably going. To, I'm probably going to run further, faster with my Nike flows to get that extra four percent. Maybe if I cross my fingers, if I'm elite enough, if I'm strong enough. So, what are the forces that I'm actually dealing with? Am I going for performance? And it's the same with any sport. You never, no one plays sport for the benefit of their health. It's like you're going to be hurt at some stage. It's, we're doing it because we just we get other psychosocial um, benefits from it, not not the biological. There are some biological benefits, of course, but we are going to damage ourselves. So, in terms of then the barefoot running, it's like, well, if I'm if I'm just going out, Joe blogs going out for a bit of a run, then I'm not involved with that idea of performance. So, I want to maybe just experiment. What is the intrinsic strength of my foot and my foot's ability to deal with the loads that I'm going to put it through? Because one of the benefits, in very commas, of a traditional running shoe with the, with the um, plastic uh, heel, um, I'm going to get some absorption of the forces through that heel that's not going to come into my body in the same way. I'm going to get some protection. If I just immediately throw that away and go minimalist and go forefoot striking, if I strike on the forefoot, that's, and to use a non-tensegrity kind of word, that's a long lever. If I strike on the forefoot all the way back to my um, calcaneus, that's a lot of force that has to be dealt with by the plantar fascia, all the other plantar tissues and the Achilles tendon. So it's like the force has changed from partly the shoe and then the heel strike, it's also going to be a lot of um, skeletal absorption as well. So the calcaneus and tibia are going to take, talus, tibia are going to take a lot of the hit. If I go to a forefoot strike, it becomes a little bit more biased to the soft tissue dealing with the absorption. So I need to make sure that I, if I'm going to, I, that I prepare the soft tissue to cope with it. Yeah. One Increase of the, the capacity, brilliant yeah. things about the, you know, the, in the, the 70s jogging craze is that everyone could do it. Yeah. It's not everyone could successfully ish go for a jog because they had the protection of the, 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 the rubber heel and they had the protection of a relatively familiar body arrangement, the long strike it's very similar to the position of walking forefoot midfoot striking that's a lot of force that requires a lot of skill 
and a lot of retraining. It's not a familiar body pattern for most of us. So the idea of just kind of ripping off and throwing away the, the running shoes and going minimalist is not a decision that should be taken lightly and we should build up. That was the Kenyan interest. research quite that the showed that um, speed, the mm -hmm. Kenyan runners, yeah. the marathon runners, the speed uh, changed their uh, uh, forefoot to yeah. in foot, yeah. uh, high in foot, high in foot. So it's not something that, you know, I think uh, it needs a little bit more thought uh, and it's not straightforward. It's not straightforward. Yeah, 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 yeah. Again, there's, you, know, you, you can also win probably pick your research paper. It's like, oh, there's the absolute um, midfoot, forefoot strike kind of mm. believers. There's the, the, the don't care believers. It's like, and to me, it's, it's let's look at the individual on what, under what yeah. circumstances yeah, does the yeah, individual yeah, yeah. optimize their performance yeah. and performance defined by their own needs, whether that's just successfully going for your park run or doing your marathon or breaking the world record. Yeah, but one thing that we definitely the one, sorry, Matt. One thing that we definitely, I love the quote from Tim Gabbett it's not the load that breaks you, it's the load that you're not prepared for. So, whatever people choose to do, it's yeah. about the training yeah. and not actually the action itself. Yeah. Your body can cope with everything if it's yeah. gradually loaded. Yeah. So, 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 I suppose the trick question. And it is, a, it is intentionally a trick question that comes from this is from an anthropological perspective. Yep. Is there a more efficient way to run when just considering the difference between forefoot on heel strike or which I appreciate means you've removed the shoe, but yep. you can, you can talk around that one. Um, uh, and, and, or is there a more efficient way to run depending on what you're trying to achieve when you're running? And I'm, I'm asking that question as a, an ultra distance runner. So I basically barely go faster than a walk, but just for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So I, I think, yes, from an anthropological point of view, from an anthropological point of view, there is a way to optimize the run. And there is, there are common shapes that the elite runners would would make and some of them um midfoot strike very few of them forefoot strike it's a really a midfoot strike some definitely midfoot strike some have a slight heel before midfoot strike and some have a relatively flat i don't mean flatness and flat-footed but a kind of simultaneous strike heel and and forefoot they for it to maximize efficiency it seems like they keep their cadence in and around that kind of magical, kind of sometimes referred to as magical 180 cadence with a strike under their body and the importance of that is that they can keep the momentum going any kind of strike in front of the body is going to bring in more of a decelerating ground reaction force so again we're back into all of the complexities there is no one straightforward answer so there is I believe the ability to teach one to anyone to run better. There is a form that seems to fit the physics of our interaction with momentum and, and the ground. Um, and that requires a lot of the, the, the variables to be correct in our biomechanics. So. And that's, 
Yeah, that that's bit, and that speaks a lot to what I've observed from uh, discussions that that runners and coaches have at at the kind of level that I'm, you know, very very amateur level, um, which is actually the discussion has moved more away from the feet. So whereas before people might talk about a heel strike or a forefoot strike or midfoot strike, as you, as you correctly point out, um, uh, and actually more talk about cadence and landing under the body, and almost then the where the foot lands is where the foot lands. That's yeah. that. Whereas, whereas the actual um, position of the sort of higher up the chain is more important and certainly provides almost a, um, a bit like internal external cueing, isn't it? We're no longer internally cueing the foot. We're externally cueing the foot by actually talking about the hips and the knees, perhaps, or, or the general position of the feet under the body. Yep. Great. I, I think you, you beautifully summarized that, that kind of the, the evolution of our understanding from the, the careers of, oh, get rid of the get rid of your Nikes, buy your Vivo barefoots and, and think about your foot. So actually, through that process, we got a better understanding of where your pelvis should be. We got a better understanding of where the, what your cadence should be. We got a better understanding of how strong your um, Achilles tendon and all the other plantar tissues need to be. So we, we've got this kind of wider vision and and hopefully wider understanding of the, the, the many different variables, dynamics that go into what we think is a simple movement. We think that is kind of binary. It's like, oh, we either we run, we walk, we jog. I'm like, well, it's not that simple. We all have slightly different lengths of feet. We all have slightly different stiffness, natural stiffnesses in our Achilles tendon. We all have different lengths of tibia and femurs, and we all have, oh, we could just keep on going. I think that's probably a good place to, because we could, we could talk all day about this, I'm sure, and go down lots of other rabbit holes. But um, that's been amazing. Thank you, James. And I think that I just, for me, what's really come home is that we need to think about the bio a bit more, a bit differently and, and appreciate its complexities so much more. So do you want to just finish off by um, just running through what you're up to at the moment, where people can find you if they want to find more about what you're doing? Sure. Um, well, I'm coming down to Exmouth in, in <laughs> Bristol to do a couple of workshops, um, Born to Move and Born to Walk. And uh, the walking workshop is based on a lot of the, the discussion we just had around if movement efficiency. Born to Move is a workshop that's based on just um, manual therapy off the table. So learning to feel and assess and work with all of those kind of the, the movement variability strategies. So what happens when my client, what happens to my client's foot whenever they move their left or right arm and um, so we'll be investigating all of that looking at um, um, how to apply manual therapy in, during movement uh, at the moment i'm just about to click the the final kind of release on the uh, improving uh, my my uh, copy for a, a new book called understanding the human foot which was my lockdown project and um, so that's about to go off to hopefully to the printer and should be available sometime maybe late September, early October. Um, and that's a nice kind of adjunct to the to the my first book, the Born to Walk book, just looking at the mechanics of um, of walking gait. So so those are the main things. And if you, anyone wants more information, um, borntomove.com. Um, so I work along with a wonderful guy called Owen Lewis. Owen is also a, a structural intuition practitioner, done a lot of 
really interesting work with Dan Lee, and he's brought in a lot of vocabulary around kind of suboptimal mechanics and and kind of expanding expanding my understanding of, of movement and and cranial torsions and pelvic torsions. So he's bringing in lots of lots of really interesting complexities into our story. Amazing. Well, this has been fantastic today. Thank you so much for joining us, James, and uh, we'll leave it there.